This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the four reasons why ideal clients never buy your product and the four R's to maximize your sales process. Today, we have our guest, Dan Morris, joining us. Dan is an experienced investor, advisor, and B2B growth expert on on a mission looking to impact 1,000 businesses positively by 2025. Dan helps companies to succeed in volatile markets, increasing profitability from existing strategies, and helping CEOs take positive steps forward to grow their business. As the managing partner at MindRacer Consulting, he, the team, and a collective partners work with B2B CEOs in services and SaaS companies to help at their go-to market, making process repeatable, and growth all across their, their business stages. Dan is also the managing partner at Jorvik Ventures, a firm that invests and supports high potential B2B companies. So welcome, Dan. Super excited to have you on uh, SaaS District today. Hey, Akil. Thanks very much. Very comprehensive introduction there. I'm very <laughs> happy to be here and uh, excited to talk to you. Awesome. Uh, so for those who don't know much about you, Dan, can you share you know, a little bit? What's your personal background? What's the story behind leaving your finance career, which you know, some people have maybe also made that transition in their entrepreneurial journey? You joined a digital agency and then you eventually built your own. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, way, way back, I, I was in a band uh, and we thought we might actually have a shot. Uh, but all that changed when the lead singer got signed to a recording contract and the rest of the band didn't. And so I started a finance career at a big bank and, uh, you know, was getting right into that, the negotiation training and the sorts of things that they were the sharing with me and enjoying that. But one of my early corporate mentors said, you know, if you work really hard, you might make it to middle management. And so I looked at that and I thought, well, I want to decide to go somewhere where I can have a really direct impact and have a little more control over what I'm able to do and, and have more of a, a canvas to paint on. So I started working with smaller, fast-growing companies. And I found a group of investors that I really clicked with. And then we built several businesses together. So you know, over the last 15 years, I've helped those founding teams in the UK and the US and Australia, now based in the US. Uh, we've been developing sales processes accelerating growth and really seeing businesses achieve a lot. And I think the trends that I've observed for sure is that most founders either don't have the time or they don't have the experience to execute on building that repeatable sales process. And so that's where we started MindRacer to help people out 
to actually give either that time or that experience. And what made me go off and, and build my own stuff? Well, we, we can definitely talk about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I hear this a lot repeatedly from different types of uh, entrepreneurs like yourself who started off you know, in music um, or you know, in that kind of industry and they shift their way to entrepreneurship. I wonder if there's, there's some kind of skill set that you, you bring over, whether it's the creative side of uh, you know, building a product or, or what is it that, that drives you? Well, there's there's two sides to it, and you know if you get really into music, it's quite mathematical as well, um, and so you know there's there's a lot of rhythm and beat and and the numbers that you have to to think about, and then there's the creative side to it as well. So I, I do I agree there's a lot of similarity there in terms of bringing something new to a process that's already there and and really adding a lot of energy and enthusiasm to it as well is something that I notice in a lot of entrepreneurs, um, but also then you've got the people who are pure numbers, right? The technology founders and the, and the engineering and structure people who also think in that same sort of methodical way. Uh, and so it's a really good meeting of the minds. Definitely. That's, that's, that's me. That's the, definitely me uh, on the engineering side. Um, cool. So, I mean, your venture, you know, you've obviously reached, uh, I think, number one on the Inc. list, right? Uh, which you described as extremely harsh market conditions. Can you, can you share a little bit about that story of how you got there? Yeah, so that, that business was a services business that got to 61 on the Inc. Magazine fastest growing companies list. And you know, when we started out, we had no idea it was going there. And, and the story that took me there was that you know, I first met these investors when I left a digital agency that was about to exit for $100 million. Uh, I'd helped those guys to build out some sales process and that was really, really a good thing. And I went across to these investors and they had me head up a startup for them. And it was 2007. So what happened in 2007 was all of our best ideas about selling to these big companies all got decimated overnight because the 2008 global financial crisis really took out a lot of the best laid plans. And so as we were deciding to draw a line under this digital signage network that we built, the same investors had a project that they wanted some help with in Boston. So within 30 minutes of drawing a line under one project, we already had the trust there. I moved my life to the United States and actually started building out the sales side of this services business. And you know, we just found that there was a need because budgets had been slashed. People needed to update their websites regularly and we were able to fill that gap at an affordable price. So we just went for a land grab selling strategy and only looked up every few months. And then when the results came in from Inc. Magazine, we were super happy about it, but just kept going. Because that wasn't a goal. It wasn't why we set out in business. It was just because we thought we could fill this need. And um, we were right. <laughs> we were able to validate the offer. And then I just got really obsessed with refining the ideal customer profile. Mm. What was it that we could do to get the same size of sales team to deliver more deals and deliver higher margin. And again, in a services business, you know, it's, it's a lot about headcount balance versus margin. And uh, we were able to really optimize both the conversion rate from meeting to deal and the average order value, which then also meant we were getting clients who were a better fit for us. They stuck around longer and the net margin increased 14%. Mm. So that's huge. <laughs> uh, and so it was a great time working with great people to do that. And, and certainly, we didn't think we'd seen... Uh, I thought we'd seen unique market conditions, but I think we've all been through something quite similar over the last year, uh, but in its own way, very weirdly different. 
Definitely, definitely. So, you know, talking about that point, which you talked about, which was the, you know, maybe the core reason of your success around there was your sales engine of what you build and you know, the sales process. So obviously the holy grail for every sales led B2B SaaS business is building a repeatable sales process. So as you, as the sales expert, uh, with, with your experience, what are crucial mistakes you see and, uh, you know, to avoid when building that repeatable sales process that you see when you're working with companies? Yeah. So the most common things are random acts of marketing. Just mm. trying to sell to absolutely anybody. Mm. Just trying to close a deal with absolutely anybody. And, you know, when you start a business, you've got to go through a phase of assuming who your customer is going to be and then going and proving it. But if you continue doing that for too long, you never get to a repeatable process. At some point, once you've got some clients to be able to look at the data and say, if you're thinking about SaaS businesses, what else do they buy? What other technologies are they using that could identify that they're at the right sort of maturity level or the right sort of size or the right sort of setup for us to also be a good fit with them at that sort of stage? So people don't do that. They do random acts of marketing instead and wonder why they're just burning dollars. They also make every deal unique. Mm. So, you know, well, we'll do this deal for you. We'll do this other deal for another person. We'll do another deal for another person. How, do you, how can you repeat something that is not, by definition, somewhat similar, very similar, right? Mm. And then also, some of them make it very difficult to do business with them. How can you make it easy to do business unless you've got simple pricing, simple proposals, which make it simple for your prospect to make a decision to work with you? Right. And then also the final one is don't try and close a prospect who has a problem that you can't solve. Just mm -hmm. because they've come to your website, they followed your marketing, whatever, you have a discussion with them and you recognize that they will give you money, but you haven't really got a solution for their problem, but you think you can work it out. Mm. A lot of founders are very tempted to do that because they're like, I know we can. And it's yeah. the curious to solve the problem. But actually, that's not repeatable. It, it uses a lot of resources that otherwise could be used on getting more clients who have a similar problem to the existing ones. Hmm. And so keep it simple is the thing that people don't do. Right. So what you're saying as part of that is, you know, obviously standardizing your, your, your options and your pricing and your service of what you're offering. And then second is, you know, really focus down on who your niche, who your industry, who you want to target and don't target everybody. I guess that's difficult, right? Like you said, at the early stages, you you want to take anybody, you would make those custom proposals, you'll, you'll do whatever and, and do things what you originally not set out to do to try to fill that gap. How do you stay strong through that and, and you know, stay disciplined? Do you have any tips around that on, um, you know, sticking to that and, and being able to say no effectively? Yeah, don't do everything on your own. Yeah, if you're if you're the founder and you're the sales engine and you're the the marketing engine and you're doing everything yourself, you're making decisions in your own head or on your own whiteboard. But if you discuss it with your team and you discuss it with your advisors, they're going to give you context and perspective on. Well, hang on a minute, aren't we supposed to be doing that instead of this? And you're just talking about deals out loud, or if you've hired early salespeople, rather than just saying go close everything. Talk to them about their deals and understand the angle that they're expecting to use. Understand the problem they're trying to solve and help them realign with, hey, look, this is what we need to do here. So to talk about it, say it out loud, get it out in the open is something that can really help from just going off course one degree at a time. 
And you, you've probably seen some kind of trend across, you know, businesses that you work with when you consult with them, making these shifts and changes and, and trying to avoid these mistakes. Once they make this shift and start getting that focus down and building those processes and their standardized uh, offering, what, what kind of expected conversion rates do you typically see increase there? Well, of course, it depends how randomly the sales process was executed before, right? Mm -hmm. you know, the, the goal really should be always to achieve 30% or more close between meeting and deal. And if you're not using that as a reasonable barometer, then you know that's a reasonable place to start. If you can go further than that, that's great, but it probably indicates you don't have very high lead volume. Mm. If you're going much lower than that, then you've got an opportunity to improve your close rate. So that's a reasonable barometer on what close rate should look like if you're getting okay. this sort of thing right. But the biggest benefit you're likely to see is a significantly shorter sales cycle. The number of days it takes between the inquiry and closing the deal and right. actually higher average order values as well because you're going to get less requirement for people demanding discounts or more from you for less because they just don't believe that they're your ideal customer. If you can tell more stories about how we help people like you and these are the experiences that they've created, that they've had and the value that they've got, it's easier to defend your price. So you will see your average order values increasing as well. Nice. So I think what you're saying is 30%, that's kind of the goal, but I think that comes after, you know, eliminating all these, uh, you know, non-ideal clients that you work with, yeah. right? Because, uh, and, and is that typically from a lead that comes in and you have a conversation or would you say, you know, once they say, yes, I'm interested and you get to a, a proposal out? So that's, that's a really good qualification. So early stage businesses typically don't do a great job of, of agreeing what a disqualification looks like before they go to a demo, right? So, right. you know, when you identify that ideal customer that you want to be working with, that forms the basis for the marketing qualified lead criteria. And if you know you're not working with an ideal fit customer, then you can expect a much lower conversion rate. You've got to decide whether it's worth your while to, to try and push that person through the sales process. Right. So if we're talking about somebody who meets that criteria of being the ideal type of customer and that they've passed a qualification such as budget, need, timing, or authority, budget, authority, need, timing, you've got something like that to get them into your sales process. That's mm -hmm. when the 30% begins to make sense, right? Got they've it. got to qualify them way, their way into the pipeline before you can start applying that average close rate. Now, I was just talking to a business this morning that's been in business a couple of years. They're about a million dollars ARR and they don't have that yet. You know, and, and so we're just beginning to introduce that. And so right. you can get to decent revenue without that. But if you really want to begin to scale and get the unit economics right, you've got to have clear entry and exit criteria for your pipeline. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And in terms of like why, so once you have these, yeah, for in terms of qualifying people or disqualifying them, you know, I've seen people who are, you know, either have it on the call and their qualification, you know, first call before getting into a demo or they have it on the, the website. And I also hear of some companies who disqualify anything that's a, you know, a Gmail or a Hotmail account. Do you have any other kind of rule of thumbs on how to effectively disqualify them? Like, would you put all those uh, details on a contact form? Like what's your budget? What's your when are you looking to start or, or where's where the best time to do that? Yeah, so the, the, earlier, the, the earlier you are, the more information you need to capture by having conversations with people. The more that you've proven that your ideal customer looks like this, the more that you can begin to adjust the fields that you require for an inquiry, that sort of stuff. But all your marketers will be thinking, hang on a minute, that increases the cost per acquisition massively. Right. But 
you know, there's a balance and you've got to look at your data and see, you know, because adding every single field that you demand in an in a inquiry form decreases the number of people that are actually going to fill it out, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be that balance of, is it better to spend a little more and get a more qualified lead or spend a little less and, and persuade them more? And that, that's got to be adjusted throughout your maturity. So, you know, there's, there's no hard and fast rule on that. Uh, mm-hmm. But the more you understand about your customer, the better you can do that job and the better you can refine your messaging before they actually talk to one of your salespeople and the better your salespeople can tell a story once they actually get onto a demo with them. And that's really what it's about. It's about tying together the story and making it as sensible as possible for that prospect to actually make the the choice to work with you. Makes sense. Um, so let's say we got the, you know, the qualification process really refined. We have the ideal clients we're working with. And we're not hitting that 30% mark, uh, that mark for where we want to convert those deals. Maybe we're getting 15, 20, maybe less. What would you say are some of the main reasons uh, you're not hitting that number and, and converting as high as you should? Uh, yeah, again, um, it might be something to do with the value proposition and versus the pricing. So, you know, if people are not getting the perceived value and you're not building that story enough, maybe there's an opportunity to interview existing customers and understand the value they got more and then feed that loop back to sales so that they can use more current stories about people like you recently invested this amount and now they're seeing this result. Uh, it's usually about fluency. Uh, you know, like how fluent is the sales team in telling stories that help people see how they're going to make their money back and more? Right. And, you know, especially if you're hiring brand new people, something I see often is founders will bring in a new salesperson and say, go and attack new verticals. Mm. But that means that person doesn't know the product, doesn't know our stories, but also is going to go and innovate in new sectors. Well, that's even harder then bringing somebody in to repeat, let's say you focus on selling to marketers, well, your stories need to all be about marketers in similar sized companies that have had that benefit. So they're the sorts of things that make a big difference in conversion. It's Mm. being able to use a relevant example, being able to tell a story about the ROI and doing it in a way that matches what they said they needed at the start of the call. Is your discovery good enough to actually tell that story for them? Makes sense. Um, so I want to get into the kind of the, the heart of, of the, the podcast, which was, you know, the four R's which we talk about. Can you explain a little bit better about the process you've developed for, you know, quickly acceleration those B2B sales for clients, the four yeah. R's that we can leverage and then obviously maximize their efficiency in the entire sales process? Yeah, sure. So the four R's, it's our default approach for if we're going to go and work with somebody and we've got a fractional exec going in there to try and add value quickly. And the first R is review. So it's essential to get an objective look at your business before you can grow it. So, you know, you might feel like your documents are designed for your ICP. You might feel like you're doing a good sales process. You might feel very confident about it. But unless you take an objective look at it and say, okay, have we had a baseline analysis of each document? had somebody else listen to calls or had listened to calls with an objective measure on it, reviewed a template, graded it, and then mapped out the simple steps we need to take it to the next level. So that'll give you a baseline on a priority list to act on. Right. So the example of that is, is refine. Refine is the process of bringing each of the required elements of a growing organization up a level or more. 
there's five levels, the way that we look at it, from nothing being in place to the team being really fluent at using it. So, you know, if, for example, we identify there's no ideal customer profile or persona template that everyone's using, the first step is to have a process where you collect and refine the data to produce that asset. Then the next level above will be to produce one for each of the ideal customers you're after and each persona you're looking for. So depending how many the business can really focus on Mm. and so on, right? So you you first review and then you refine to take yourself up to the next level in lots of different areas. Mm -hmm. And another example is within a sales call, you've got to break down the discovery. You've got to break down the use of the information used in the discovery. You've got to break down the value propositions delivered in the demo in order to really be able to say, you scored a one here, you scored a three there. Let's talk about how we can get you from a one to a three. Right? Mm. So review, refine, and then roll out. Roll out is the process of training and coaching your team to use those assets that you've created to really make sure they get to fluency in being able to talk things through and, and defend them and explain them to the prospect. And then actually our fourth R is exactly what a founder needs to do replace mm-hmm. right so you know we get to the end of an engagement and we replace ourselves with a sales leader the founder needs to replace themselves with all sorts of people in the business right and yeah. quickly so they, they need to be able to teach other people how to use it get them toward fluency and then replace themselves so we follow that exact same model and really it's a it's an, an iterative development process that that covers all aspects of sales so it, as founders you can do that Uh, You can identify that for each part of your sales process, make sure that people are able to follow it and then replace yourself. Nice. So I I do want to focus on the the replace side in a second here. But before we get to that, uh, you mentioned about the refine uh, area, which is, you know, making sure you have different or kind of customized uh, scripts and kind of proposals and sales process for each type of uh, industry and ICP or uh, ideal clients you work with. How many is too many? How much should you, you know, really have at this early stages? And, you know, where do you kind of make that that focus of, you know, how many you should start with and work with? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. And the answer is to keep it as lean as you can. If you can agree on one ideal customer profile, and that might be a shape and size of business in a certain industry or something like that, that's usually the great place to start because nobody's got unlimited marketing resources to start off with. Nobody can memorize so many different company stories all at the same time. So that's it's really better to try and focus on one until you get to a point where you can actually really support a second, mm. which means the whole marketing materials around it, the sales materials around it, taking time to train your salespeople on the sales materials around that second ICP. So, right. you know, in the early stages, it's one. You know, maybe it's when you go and raise some money, you start looking at how many others you would want to approach. And then you understand the process you would actually go through to build out the right number of assets in order to support them properly. And then do the marketing around it as right. well, right? Like there's lots of marketing activities required for each ICP. Right. So yeah, focus on one until you're able to really feel confident about funding the next one. And that's, that's it. It's confidence. You've got to make your own decisions about when that looks like. Okay. 
It makes perfect sense. Um, and then shifting to the replacement side. So, you know, there's there's different options that founders can take at this point, right? They can either hire a full-time sales rep, but, you know, that, that sounds expensive. They try to go, you know, commission only. They try all different things to, to kind of replace themselves. Others have, you know, some have successfully outsourced their entire sales team without no issues. Others have maybe uh, many problems when, when trying out that strategy. So what's your kind of take on, you know, outsourcing, replacing your sales? Um, and what are some, maybe some considerations founders need to think about when starting to explore that strategy? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So, you know, I, I think the simplest way to think about it, and we're, we're making the assumption here that a product needs a sales team and has a consultative element to the sales process. Right. Right. And so, it, first of all, you've got to prove people want your product or service before you can ask anyone else to close the deal for you. Right. So, you know, as a founder, a founding team, you've got, have got to have done it a few times before you can accurately explain to anybody else how you did it. And then you need to be able to bring in a list or a, a manual or a guideline of how somebody else could do that and be able to show them how you did it, walk them through it before you've got any realistic chance of being able to bring in somebody else to replace you, whether that's internally or externally. However, it is easier to outsource things like marketing and an initial SDR than it is to have somebody manage your whole sales process. So, you know, what we try and do is we guide founders to get themselves really busy with marketing leads or even with SDR support to the point where they've got enough at-bats to be able to say, here's how the sales process works. And then steadily have somebody start taking over the front end of the sales process, right. the discovery and the demo, and then keep them involved almost like a sales engineer to deal with the details of the negotiation and the, the ins and outs of the product until they're ready to progress to the next stage and so on. And then once you've done that, you can then have a conversation potentially with the people who've been doing the SDR work for you about progressing those people into a more of a further down the pipeline role. Some partners will do it, some won't. And, and so it can work. But the odds are much higher if you have a manual to train reps than can confidently show them how to do it. Right. So at, at the initial stages, maybe you want to still focus on the closing, on the you know on the stages with more hotter leads, and maybe you know having them follow a process for maybe qualification and you know building the the leads. Right. Yeah. So you know, as a founder, you've got a lot more flexibility than anyone else. You've also got immediate trust that nobody else will ever have, and so you're going to be able to get more deals done with a slightly less strong lead than a, a new sales hire would or an outsourced sales team hire would, regardless of how well-trained they are. Because right. you've got that founder's guarantee, right? And you've got the founder's swagger as well, the confidence that okay. we're going to be able to help you. And so founders have to be aware of that, right? Like that really does move deals forward. Um, and so that's how that they can add value. They can support somebody who's beginning to take the early stages off by coming in and giving it their seal of approval uh, and meeting the prospect. And then when that doesn't become scalable anymore, you should already then get to the point where you've had enough runs at the sales process for somebody else to be able to meaningfully take it over. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, I, I know with some teams, you know, once they start building, you know, their entire sales team, they kind of come overloaded. It becomes a lot of, uh, you know, more work for the, the CEO to continue doing those sales and managing the entire sales team. So they start moving yeah. towards thinking the idea of, you know, hiring a VP of sales to their team. So obviously in 2021, you know, a VP of sales needs to be incredibly 
you know, capable of using digital platforms, CRMs, uh, you know, sh world is shifting and getting more comfortable working remotely. Uh, and obviously the circumstances have disrupted what traditional models have done with sales teams being in person, motivation, uh, you know, staying on top of, of uh, the sales deals and managing them in person. How do you suggest kind of being a uh, you know, effectively hiring a VP of sales, you know, remotely, and how should they be looking at it uh, in terms of navigating the circumstances in 2021? Yeah, sure. So um, in 2021, well, we were just talking about it before, like the, the trend yeah. of remote selling is not going away. Right. You know, people have made an adjustment now that if they like selling remotely, a lot of times if their business decides to bring them back into an office, they might want to actually just decide to go work for a company that's going to support them to work remotely. And, you know, owners, founders, they need to be aware of that. Like if they're going to be able to retain great talent, then that's going to be one of the ways in which they're going to be able to do it. And so there will be VPs who are in that sort of world. They've been working remotely, they're thriving working remotely, and they may or may not want to go back to an office like they were before. Vice versa, the same will be true, right? But you know, there's the opportunity to make it attractive for people to come in and work in a remote environment for a business that has a successful repeatable process. And the sorts of tools that they need to be really comfortable with are things like call coaching software. The, the gongs, the choruses, the Jiminy's of the world, Refract, there's lots of them. But you know, being able to use those tools to listen to and support your sales team remotely without them having to have you sit next to them <laughs> are vital going forward. You know, having right. templated proposals that is in a tool like PandaDoc or Proposify, very, very easy to build and set up and actually allows you to see what's being sent out and, and to be able to give feedback on it rather than just documents going back and forth. Um, another big one is actually to have them reevaluate your CRM to mm. ensure that it accurately maps to your actual sales process. You know, we went into a SaaS company last year and multiple sales reps had been around for, for years and the, the sales process that they were actually using didn't map to the CRM. So guess what? There wasn't a great CRM adoption. All they were doing was recording when deals were done. There wasn't great forecasting. So if you were able to dive back in and, and understand the stages of the sales process and then reevaluate your CRM, everybody who's working remotely is going to get more value from it. Right. Which means that as the executive, you're going to be able to have better vision on what's really happening. So, you know, bringing in a VP of sales who's got experience doing that and really can talk the talk as well as walk the walk there is going to be a massive value to the founder. And the, the point of caution is hiring somebody who believes they can do that, but has never done it before. And the founder who has no experience or no interest in doing that hires an overconfident person who believes they can. And sometimes they're right, mm. but it's a big risk that they're not. And right. you end up with something that just doesn't work, right? So I'm not saying that's not, not possible to do, but it's something that does happen the wrong side of things, unfortunately, too often. So the final part there is invest in SOPs standard operating processes and invest in enablement. Like if you've got somebody who writes content to support sales teams with case studies, uh, you know, information about the product, answering questions that come up a lot in, this, in the demos with a document, that's really useful for remote teams uh, so that they're not constantly slacking saying, hey, has anyone got this? Has anyone got that? You've got a folder full of it. 
and, and that can be really helpful. So, you know, VPs who will be successful remotely will be paying attention to those things and using those sorts of tools. And just a quick question around that. Any favorite uh, CRMs you recommend for a sales team? Maybe top two or three, your favorite? I mean, the most common one that gets chosen by SaaS companies that want to scale is Salesforce. You know, every, everybody knows that the Salesforce is a very extensible platform. and There's all sorts of things that you can bolt onto it. But in the very early stage, it's very, very heavy lifting. There's lots mm-hmm. of potential options. And so, you know, we're also big fans of HubSpot. I think HubSpot's a very easy platform to get going with. They actually have a free CRM uh, and you can adjust and move things around very easily yourself without having to bring in external uh, sales ops consultants and so on. But, Mm -hmm. you know, once you're going to be building teams of tens and tens and tens of reps, it's between those two, depending on what your needs are and, and how much of the business needs to run on the CRM in the background, right? There's the rest of your technology stack, you need to think about that. But I would say that they're the top two. Right. So moving kind of in the last stage of the, the sales, right? You've got your ICP, you've got your conversions kind of fine-tuned, you've got a VP of sales now. Now you really want to kind of optimize for performance um, across your team. And, and uh, you know, specifically, you know, how do you help founders increase maybe their, their customers' LTV uh, once they kind of, ha- you know, face that issue of, of uh, you know, trying to maximize the value of each lead that comes in. Mm-hmm. So again, we're working with founders who already have clients. Right. So you know, if I ask them to identify what their ICP is, finance will send me a list of names and how much they spent last year. Marketing will tell me their the names, their, their job titles, and how much they spent. But what we really need is examples of businesses that are using similar technology or similar number of employees or similar revenues or so on in order to be able to complete what that ICP looks like. Because if you know that you're working with a business at the right maturity stage as all your other customers and that they might be in a growth phase where you might be able to sell them more seats or more stuff, uh, then your opportunity to increase the lifetime value is fantastic because you can grow with them. But also your opportunity to increase average order value improves because you can tell stories about other people like them who started with package A and also had this bolt on and then grew to package B. Uh, and you know, again, it's about telling those stories about people like them. And the more things you can find in common yeah, you know, we looked at the we looked at the technology that you're using at the moment. Yeah, you know, if you're selling marketing SaaS, for example, you can see all the web technologies that are in use on the on the website, right? You can straight away say, right, people who are using this email marketing platform are going to get great value by working with us, and they they also like to buy this, this, and this. Right. Those sorts of logical bundles are what we're always looking for. Uh, it's rarely about reinventing the wheel. It's normally about identifying the people who are getting most value anyway, and then identifying the things they buy further down the line, bringing those into the sales process initially, and letting people know what their growth path looks like. Interesting. So at this point, it's really about like digging deep into your data, looking at your customers, and like understanding you know different uh, you know data points that you can go back and then go back basically essentially refine your ICP and make it more targeted. Um, I think is what what kind of you're saying, right? Consistently going back there will 
pay dividends over the, over mm-hmm. the long term because you just get to understand more and more about those people yeah. and then you pay attention to how they grow using your tools and, and what else they buy and how else the customer success team is serving them and then you bring those stories into sales and you can start to increase your average order value earlier by telling them what other people like them did. Love it. Uh, so then kind of want to shift gears here. You know, we, we, we had a really good conversation around the sales going into kind of the rapid fire questions. What's one advice you wish you had known and you maybe would tell your, your 25 year old self? Uh, set bigger goals. Okay. Nice. You know, I, I think the one thing definitely set bigger goals than I, than I thought I had when I was 25. Also, plan to invest in cash flow businesses. That's definitely something that I wasn't thinking about back then. Um, but also I think in balance, you know, there's a lot of guru advice right now about how you have to sacrifice your 20s in order to thrive later in life. And you know, I think everyone's just lived through a year where at some point they wish they'd done more travel or th- they wish they'd done something else. So you know, just, just paying heed to the fact that you know, definitely working out the right direction to work hard, but not missing out on life's experiences along the way because you know, they pay dividends themselves. Love it. I think it's, what's it called? BHAG? Big, hairy, audacious B-hag, goals. yeah. The big, B-hag, hairy, yeah. audacious goal. <laughs> nice, nice. Love <laughs> it. Um, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you can share that you're currently facing in, in order to grow your own uh, consultancy, Mind Racers? Yeah, I mean, we're always interested to meet great people that are aligned with using their experience to help businesses that are creating jobs and, and really positively impacting our economy. And so meeting all those people takes a lot, a lot of time and, and building teams, we're all, attra- we're all you know, aligned with finding the right talent is always the biggest investment of time, but also the biggest payoff. And so, you know, and, and we're always meeting people who've been VPs or built companies in a couple of different companies and are interested in adding more value to those types of companies. Um, that's one of the things that is both the biggest challenge and the biggest reward of, of building a business like this one. Of course, yeah. And I think you have a, a pretty cool vision of trying to help a thousand, a thousand businesses by 2025. So that's right. If anyone yeah. li- li- is listening and wants to be part of that, uh, you know, obviously reach out to Dan. Um, Dan, what or who are some of the best three resources, uh, sorry, best three resources, whether that's books, uh, people, mentors, influencers, people you follow, who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over the last couple of years? Uh, the last couple of years, I think one of the, one of the best books that I read is called The One Thing. Mm. And uh, that's produced by Gary Keller of Keller Williams Real Estate. And uh, they also have a great podcast. And um, it's really about focusing obviously on the one thing that's going to move the biggest lever for you in each part of your life at any given time. Uh, so that's a really excellent book, really excellent philosophy. It works really well, uh, but also a great podcast to tune into. So that's definitely one to, to check out. Uh, another great book is Marketing Made Simple by Donald Miller. Uh, he's the guy who has the story brand philosophy. And um, you know, the more technology businesses that I meet that have really complex websites that just don't explain simply what they actually do and who for, uh, the more I find myself recommending that they read through that book and just get it simple. It's a step-by-step guide on how to rebuild your messaging. Uh, so I find myself recommending that all the time. It's really good. Uh, and another one is a, is a good friend of mine, Chris Shembra. 
who's Forbes's gratitude guru. Uh, you know, Chris connects people in a way that is quite unique. Uh, and he asks a, a very specific question over dinner. And he's been doing virtual dinners for hundreds and hundreds of people a week all the way through COVID, connecting people from around the world. Uh, and, and his question is, is very specific. And I don't want to butcher it, but I would recommend looking him up. Chris Shembra is the gratitude guru and his business is called 747 Club. Awesome guy, amazing person, and, and really focused on gratitude and, and paying attention to what's working and who you could possibly give thanks to. Awesome. Love it. Well, we'll add those, uh, those books to our show notes for people to check out. I haven't read the, the last two, but uh, I'll definitely check them out. Uh, Dan, what does success mean to, to you today, whether that's personally, financially, business? Uh, you know, there's no right answer. Yeah, I, I think I might have queued it up a little bit with, with my previous answer. I mean, personally, yeah. during COVID, it's gratitude for the small things. Um, you know, having lunch with loved ones, uh, maintaining good health, thankfully, um, but also being able to help others uh, and, you know, committing time to, to share some of the thoughts that we have and some of the processes we've got in podcasts like this is it's a real joy to be able to make time to do that. And so personally, that's something that, that really makes me feel like I'm delivering a lot for people. Um, and, and that's good because it's not just in here anymore about the, the individual success thing that I definitely experienced years ago. And then financially, it's, it's about the flexibility to work with companies in different ways. Uh, you know, obviously there's a there's sort of time for money perspective in the, in the world of consulting, but also equity partnerships and equity stakes in businesses to really help guide them and grow them. You know a lot about that. Um, and so that, that's something that I think as we go forward, they're the things that I look for. Love it. And I, I appreciate you being on today, Dan. Uh, this, is, this was great. Uh, what are your future plans for, for MindRacer? And maybe tell us, where can our audience get in touch with you and learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So MindRacer's focus is to keep on helping. Uh, you know, like we're going to get past that thousand number and way beyond and, and move that to a, a much quicker cadence than a couple of years at a time. And so, you know, people can get hold of us. They can find uh, our resources at mindracerconsulting.com. Uh, and, you know, if businesses have already got that $250,000 of revenue and they're looking to sort of work out what's happening next, we're actually going to give away a sales readiness assessment to anyone who mentions this podcast. Uh, so anyone who mentions this podcast in Q1, we'll give that away. It's actually valued at $1,000. So, you know, so it's a couple of hours of commit work together, really understand some info. We'll give that to people who, who reach out if they want it. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing that for our audience. And guys, definitely take advantage of that. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's huge value for us. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be here, Akil. Great, uh, great meeting you. And uh, thanks for your time. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.